I graduated high school in 1988. Any other class of 88? Yeah, hey, sweet. I think Mandy is too. Um, but this means that my imagination was deeply shaped by 80s films. Anybody else have this problem? Like, you, you think in John Hughes and Cameron Crowe lines, like that just everything reminds you of something that happened in, in one of those films. So it was bad for me, like during just the four years of my high school, these are just a few of the movies that came out. There's The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Better Off Dead, I Want My Two Dollars, um, St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, Stand and Deliver. Anybody seen Stand and Deliver? A lot of people slept on that one. It is amazing. The math teacher has, has seen it. Um, 16 Candles, for heaven's sakes. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Say Anything, maybe my favorite. And Back to the Future. This is kind of my little top 10 of that era. Um, and it leaves out, that 10 leaves out a bunch of iconic films from the, just that four years, like Footloose, The Princess Bride, Inconceivable, right? Um, Die Hard, Stand By Me, The Goonies. This is not a bad run, right, of filmmaking. I, I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me to um, make up that list and to whittle it down to just 15 and 16 because um, the next 10 are still classics. I'm talking Can't Buy Me Love, <laughs> Big, A Fish Called Wanda, Cocktail, um, Young Guns, Mystic Pizza. Okay, I'll stop. Except to say, also, Less Than Zero, and Bull Durham, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which still holds up. I watched this with one of my boys, and he was like, this is actually legit. This movie still works. Um, the 80s were, that's, that's like this um, formational decade for me. And um, it was a good run of, of 80s films. And I grew up watching them all. And part of what this means is that I encountered a steady dose of what is called the grand gesture. The grand gesture. This was a staple of the 80s film. Hero would take some big risk of embarrassment or rejection in order to make their feelings known in some like big dramatic gesture. Not, not like a selfish, selfish like self-aggrandizing, self-serving way, but in sort of a heroic, self-sacrificial act that's done for someone else. It's like when Ren McCormick was quoting the Bible in, in Footloose to, to the, the city council, right? Tr trying to convince them all to let the students hold a dance. I mean, he quoted Ecclesiastes, for heaven's sakes. There's a, there's a time for everything under the sun, remember? And there was, there was a time for this law, but not now. Now is our time to dance, right? This is, this is it. I told you I can go for a while. Or Lloyd Dobler, I mean, come on holding the boombox over his head and say anything, this is 1989, blasting Peter Gabriel's in your eyes straight toward Diane Court's open window, right? I mean, these, these are iconic moments in, in film. And often the grand gesture sort of has, has no hope of working. A lot of times it, 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 it's not actually trying to change things. But the point really isn't to force things to work out. The point is just to make sure that the one they care about knows how much they are loved and how important they are. And for me, maybe the, the greatest grand gesture in all of film is from Dead Poet Society. It's 1989 too, right? So this is teacher Mr. Keating, a member Robin Williams, who has just been fired for leading all the boys astray, 
but he's just a scapegoat because he actually really inspired them. They loved him, but the school forced the boys to like sign this statement against him. And then um, the snooty headmaster comes in, is taking over his class, and he wants them to read the section out of the textbook that's called How to Measure the Worth of a Poem, but they can't. You remember because on the first day of school, he made them tear that part out and throw it, throw it away. And he said it was a stupid idea trying to measure the worth of a poem because a poem can't really be assigned a value or rated. You remember what I, I'm talking about. If it makes you feel alive, if it fills you with passion, then it's poetry. Who cares what other people think? And he teaches them, oh, captain, my captain, the great Walt Whitman poem that he wrote about his captain, Abraham Lincoln. And he tells them, you can call me Mr. Keating or you can call me, oh, captain, my captain, if you're feeling slightly daring. And he captures their imagination and he inspires them to learn. But now he's being blamed for something he didn't do. He gets let go from the school. And Mr. Keating returns in the middle of their lesson on that day when the snooty headmaster is talking to them and he's just there to pick up his things. But now the class is there looking at him. All the students are there, including a very young Ethan Hawke. You remember this guy? Barely shaving Ethan Hawke. He can't take it anymore. Describing it is clearly not doing it justice. So maybe we'll just, um, I'll just ask you to watch it with me. excellent essay by Dr. Pritchard on understanding poetry. That page has been ripped out, sir. Well, if I were somebody else's book. They're all ripped out, sir. <laughs> what do you mean they're all ripped out? Sir, we... Never mind. Read. Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech. Then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. The Keating, they made everybody Why, sign Anderson? it. <laughs> you got to believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. I said leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? You hear me? Oh, captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warn you. Sit down. Sit down, all of you. I want you seated. Sit down. Leave, Mr. Keating.
at least watch the movie or become a teacher or something. Um, yeah, man, for me, this is, this is about as, as good as it gets, I think. Um, and uh, it kind of it shows you that what makes the grand gesture so inspiring is, is that the one making it, um, they kind of aren't afraid to lose themselves in the moment, you know? They, there has to be this kind of naive sincerity to, to what they're doing in their action. Like they can't care about what happens to them when they do this because they're just compelled to convey this heartfelt love and appreciation for, for whoever they're making this gesture toward. And our story today in the scripture is just one of the greatest grand gestures of all time. It's a, it's, it's a stunning move. This story actually took place in a little town called Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem um, at the house of the guy named Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. They were followers of Jesus and supporters. But even more than that, they were his friends. They spent a lot of time with him. John says that, that Christ loved them dearly. A few days earlier, Jesus had been over on the other side of the Jordan River trying to avoid the temple guards who were searching for him because he had a price on his head. But then he got word that his buddy Lazarus was gravely ill, and so he left for Bethany, knowing that first, he would be pretty easy to arrest there if he showed up, and second, um, that he would probably be too late to save his friend, and he, he was. By the time he got there, Lazarus was, had been dead for a couple days, and Jesus, Jesus stood in front of his tomb, weeping, and then he called him forth, and Lazarus came out wrapped in burial cloths like a mummy. Now, raising Lazarus um, did not help things, you know, in terms of Jesus being a wanted man. This was a tremendous embarrassment for the Sadducees. Not only was he obviously more powerful than them, but their distinctive teaching was that there was no life after death. And yet, here's Lazarus back from, you know, somewhere. And it's kind of undermining to their, their beliefs. And so Jesus graduated from kind of nuisance to serious theological threat. And the Jewish council met in response to this, to Lazarus' um, healing, and decided killing Jesus wasn't actually enough. They needed to kill Lazarus, too. And so the smart play here was to, to disappear for, for a while. So head back to Galilee, skip the Passover this year. But Jesus, we're told, was headed toward Jerusalem, toward a big confrontation. And the only ones who seemed to really get this were his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They took him in, cared for him. They kind of shut the world out for just one night. And for a moment, um, I just want you to imagine yourself in, in that, that room at dinner with them, like Lazarus, freshly from the grave, you know? When I do, I know I should be focused on Jesus, but all I can think about is Lazarus. You're in a room with a dude who was dead for three days. Like, I have so many questions. Um, and the writer of John is, of course, doing this intentionally because Lazarus is presence is sort of this constant reminder um, that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem and he's going to confront not just the leaders um, of the Jewish people and not just Pilate, but Jesus is heading toward a confrontation with death itself. He's challenging death head on. He's walking the streets in plain sight, daring death to come and face him in the open. And on his way to Jerusalem, these friends of his put him up for the night and show him support and hospitality. 
Now, a meal like this would have followed a standard structure, a familiar structure for them. Um, there were social cues to all of this. The guests would, would have entered at the door and sat on little stools, and there would be wash basins on the floor, and they would take turns washing their own grimy feet. You know, back then, they didn't bathe every day, and our bodies kind of have, have a way to compensate for that, but, but the feet are another story, right? They had to be washed often, and so they, they would wash them before they came into this room so, so it wouldn't be all stinky in there. And, and they had done this thousands of times. And then when the meal was set out, they would have lounged on pillows, kind of all leaning toward a short table in the center of the group with their feet sticking out behind them, away from the food. One hand is perpetually unclean, and, and that would have been what they kind of lean on, and then they would reach forward with their other hand with bread and to, to dip from the, the common dish. And the men would recline at the table, and the women would serve the meal. But Mary breaks protocol. You have to kind of remember a little bit what Mary and Martha have been going through in these weeks. Your brother got gravely ill, and you know, you do not want to be an unmarried woman in the ancient world um, without a male in, in your life. Women could not even own property. So when Lazarus was gone, like their nearest relative or some lo- you know, powerful local man could swoop in and take everything. So they stood, stood to lose much more than just a brother if Lazarus died, and he did. Jesus was way across the Jordan avoiding the authorities, and coming back to Bethany would, would mean probably trading his life for a friend, but that's what he did. In raising Lazarus, he makes himself completely vulnerable. So could you imagine the kind of gratitude that Mary and Martha were feeling for Jesus. And I picture um, Mary, especially, watching him throughout the, the evening, partly thinking, man, you need to get out of here. You need to run fast. And partly thinking, but if you're going to go through this, if you're going to go to Jerusalem and confront the powers and confront death, then this is probably the last time I'm going to get to see you alive. The least I can do is properly honor you. And so we're told she took a jar of perfumed oils, knelt at Jesus' feet, and opened the jar. And she didn't make some big speech. She didn't announce her intentions. She just opens this jar. And immediately, the aroma would have hit the room. And everyone was stopped and looked over at her, all of them, watching her. As Mary did several shocking things. If you don't know the kind of social like cues of the time might be lost on you. She does very shocking things in what is a, it's this a grand gesture. First of all, she let her hair down in a room full of men. Honorable women were never seen with their hair down in the ancient world, um, not by anybody except their husbands. Women always had their hair up and their heads covered unless they were in private with a husband. And th- what she does is consider lewd behavior at least overly familiar. Then she used this really expensive oil to anoint Jesus' feet. And John tells us the oil was worth around 300 silver denarii. That number actually had particular meaning to them, to the first readers. 300 denarii was kind of a shorthand way of saying a year's wages. And, and, and this, is, <laughs> this is a lot, this is over the top, right? It's a lot worth a lot of money. Third, she touched the feet of an unmarried man in front of everybody. You know, in the ancient world, single women did not even touch single men and vice versa. It just, it wasn't done. The, um, so massaging oils 
into his feet. It was scandalous. Even, even today, it'd be a little weird. Somebody's like doing that around you. You're like, jeez. <laughs> feet gross me out. Um, and then four, she wiped the oil off his feet with her own hair. And this act is, frankly, inexplicable. Like, there is no ancient Middle Eastern example of this type of thing happening in the historical record. There's, this is a completely unique occurrence in ancient literature. It's an unprecedented grand gesture. And there are no social customs that explain this. It's kind of bizarre. This story actually appears in all four of the Gospels. Each time it's a little bit different. In Matthew and Mark, it takes place in, in Bethany, but um, at a different house, the house of Simon the leper. And there it's a nameless woman, not Mary. And she doesn't anoint his feet, she anoints his head. In Matthew, the objection comes from all of the disciples, not just Judas. In Mark, it says only some objected, but we don't even really know who. In Luke, it happens at um, a Pharisee's house much earlier in the timeline in Jesus' life. And the woman is called a notorious sinner, and she, she weeps the whole time, if you remember, wetting his feet with her tears and the oil. And the objection that time comes from Simon the Pharisee. And here in John, he seems to have, when John wrote his gospel, he probably had all the other ones. He, he could reference them. And here in John, the, he kind of combines them. The woman is not a stranger or a, a sinner any more than anybody else, but a longtime friend who supports Jesus and whose brother Jesus has just raised from the dead. But in all, in all the feelings, you know, and all the, I don't know, the different versions, the different tellings, of the, the story. This act um, is kind of spontaneous and extravagant. It's, it's a grand gesture, an act of adoration and, and love. She let her hair down. She anointed his feet with valuable oil, using so much of it she had to sop up the extra with her own hair. It's just, it's over the top. And Judas, I mean, God bless Judas, right? He just kind of says what everybody had to be thinking. Why didn't you just sell this, give all the money to the poor, right? You could get a lot for that stuff. And, and then there's this gloss that says Judas kept the common purse and he used to kind of pilfer from it. And so there's, there's this contrast that John makes between the extravagance of Mary and, and the stinginess, the duplicitousness of Judas. And that's also part of the grand gesture. It draws a contrast, Right? between kind of the unapologetic, um, just losing yourself for a minute, naive sincerity of Mary that's earnest, it's genuine, and Judas, who clearly cares about other things. But the contrast, I think, that moves me the most involves an observation that a lot of scholars have made down through the years, which is that in their culture, the first time a woman would ever let her hair down in the presence of a male would have been on her wedding night. Not that she intended to marry Jesus, but she seems to be pledging fidelity to him. It wasn't a sexual thing. She was just saying, I'm all in, like I'm holding nothing back. I see who you are. And it was just this seemingly spontaneous, intimate and personal act of devotion. She just lost herself in this grand gesture of thanks for what he'd done in risking his life to save her brother, and also in anticipation 
of the death that she seems to now know that he was facing. Just lavishly pours this jar of perfume out, washing his feet, wiping it with her hair. You think about kind of the intensity of it, just the interpersonal, relational intensity of this. And then what what it kind of implies about our relationships, the way that we treat those around us, the way we can get so consumed with like the busyness of our lives, the way we can get so distracted and stressed and tired and worn out that we just sort of forget how important it is to make sure those we love know how much we love them, know that they are important to us. And I wonder what holds us back what keeps us from showing them they're loved. Plus, Scripture tells us that God still shows up all the time in the world, disguised as the least of these, you know? The hungry and the sick, the homeless, the unemployed, the immigrant, the mentally ill. You know, why, why do we not lavish them with our most precious gifts as people, as a society? God shows up every single day in the world, you know, disguised as your spouse or children, co-workers, friends, neighbors, family, the ones we love, or in the faces of the marginalized. And so what is it? What, what is it that holds us back from constant grand gestures, you know, of love and adoration for one another? I mean, do you think Mary was ever sorry later on for what she had done? Like she regretted the grand gesture and kind of wished she had the cash later on? I don't think so. I have some regrets in my life, but never have I regretted telling somebody um, that I love how much they mean to me. Never have I regretted just sharing lavishly with someone who's like down on their luck and out and struggling, who just needs help being there for a friend in a time of need. Never have I regretted those things, but I don't don't always do it. And I wonder why. When Judas voices his objection, he expects others to agree with him. But Jesus steps in and comes to her defense. He's like, let her alone. She's anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you. You don't always have me. Can lavish your gifts on the poor later on. Mary had this one chance to, to lavish her love. It speaks of like just the reality of time and the preciousness of the moment. You never know how much time you have to lavish love on those you love. She took it, and she was glad she did, I bet, because a week later he'd be dead. Scholars say that it's likely that the oil she used was left over from the funeral. They had bought it to use in in the burial rites of her brother, but now he wouldn't need them. But Jesus did, and and so she used them for him. So this this, um, conflict with death sort of hovers over this story. And then comes Mary with her oil, and, and she kind of has, to, has a choice to make in the moment. She could anoint his head. That's what you do for, like, for kings or messiahs. You anoint their heads with oil. That would have been an appropriate symbol as well. That's what some of the other gospels do. Or she could anoint his feet, which is what you did to a corpse. 
Doing that was like saying, this, this man, our, our Messiah, is as good as dead, and we all know it. My, you know, oh, captain, my captain, will be a sacrifice to the powers. And so she chooses to anoint his feet. And Jesus blesses it. He, he appreciates it. Mary's action wasn't, um, in a sense, it wasn't just a grand gesture of, like, love and friendship and support for him. It was also a prophetic gesture, kind of excessive in a way that really matches the excessiveness of his sacrifice. And Jesus appreciates it. She gets it. She gets the excess of what he's doing. Barbara Taylor says it this way, there will be nothing economical about this man's death, just as there has been nothing economical about his life. In him, the extravagance of God's love is made flesh. In him, the excessiveness of God's mercy is made manifest. Mary's devotion is not cool or reasonable or sensible or economical because God's love is not those things. Mary's act of love for Jesus is extravagant and excessive and over the top because God's love and God's mercy is extravagant and excessive and over the top. And so the way that Christians are meant to love is extravagant and excessive, over the top. Maybe not always in in grand gestures, although they can happen sometimes, they're great. But, you know, love can be extravagant in a lot of ordinary ways. And part of what it means to follow Jesus is to become an expert in those ways, to learn how to care about people in ordinary ways everyday moments to to sacrifice for them over and over in very normal, quotidian, just sort of ordinary days every single day. Because just as Mary um, poured the precious oil onto Jesus' feet to anoint him, so Jesus would pour out his life very soon as an offering for many, we're told. And so we're meant to do the same for each other as our lives become kind of a grand gesture. Think about that, your life as a grand gesture. The only thing you could do here in the world poured out hopefully in gratitude and love for God, for self, for other people in the world. Later that week, Jesus would gather with his friends another time. It was, it was um, another feast, but um, in, in John, it's a little different. They don't do, um, in their, the Last Supper, they don't do the Eucharist. He doesn't redefine that whole meal. Instead, what he does there is he strips down um, to his waist and ties a towel around his hips and takes a basin of water, and he washes the disciples' feet. He, he sort of reenacts Mary's grand gesture and tells them um, to always serve each other like this. If you've ever seen, you know, in high church how the priests wear vestments and they sometimes wear stoles, that's the meaning of the stole. The stole on a priest is the towel from that story. He says, always do this. Never be afraid of lavishing love and affection on each other sharing generously of yourself, your being, you, 
with those who are in need. Because every time you do, what happens is God just um, miraculously shows up in the world, in, in the faces of those you serve and love. The, the word becomes flesh. He said, when you do it for the least of these, you do it unto me. He didn't say it's like you do it to me. He said, you do it to me. There's this great story um, that Brene Brown tells. I love Brene Brown for some reason. I know she's probably for women more than men, but I love her. Um, he tells this story about this one Saturday. She went shopping with her daughter. They ran, just ran to Nord- Nordstrom to pick up some makeup. They rolled out of bed, no makeup, hadn't even brushed their teeth. They were gross. And on the way in, they, they stopped because there was a sale to look at shoes. They meant to just run in, grab the thing, and get out before anybody saw them. But they started goofing around and having fun. And um, they didn't really want to be seen by anybody, but um, suddenly Brene Brown spotted a pack of alpha moms, she said, with her daughters. Dressed to the nines, like completely done up, like Texas done up. They're in Texas. Um, Texas at Nordstrom's like, sounds like a version of hell to me. <laughs> but her daughter didn't see him. She was goofing around, and, and, and Brene did, and immediately just started thinking, oh, geez, like felt self-conscious about the way she looked. And then suddenly, out of the corner of her eye, she saw this strange blur of jerky movement over to the side, and it was her daughter, a song that she loved had come on the radio, and she was doing the robot dance in the middle of Nordstrom, right? And I mean, this, this is like straight out of a John Hughes or Cameron Crowe film, like this situation. And then, then she's going for it pretty, pretty hard, and, and then um, the daughter looked up and um, saw the alpha moms, and and their daughters, just like staring at her, trying not to laugh, or mouths agape. And the daughter just froze in mid-robot, and then looked at her mom like, what do, what do I do? And um, Brene Brown talks about that. She said she, she, could, she sensed in that moment how much was riding on the next thing that she did. And she was already feeling totally judged by these moms. She had seen him and the daughter hadn't, and, and now her, her daughter was doing the robot, and it was activating her insecurity again. But what she did is, in this spontaneous act of devotion, she chose the grand gesture. She, when she tells a story, she says, you know what you need? You need the scarecrow. You need to add the scarecrow to your act, like, which I can't do. But letting her forearm dangle and... And they just stood there, like working on their dance moves in the middle of Nordstrom while the, you know, the alpha moms and daughters went about their thing. And, and don't you just know that that little girl knew in that moment, like didn't guess in that moment or didn't think or wonder. She knew that her mom loved her and that she was enough for her mom. And this is the kind of power, right, that lives in those little ordinary choices that we make. You think of the damage that would have been done if she would have, you know, thrown her under the bus. So you're so weird and turned away or something. I mean, this, this was a moment of glory that Mary herself would have been proud of. And, and here's what I think. I think that moment of connection with the mom, between the mom and the daughter acting the fool at Nordstern, I think what you call that is love. It's love. 
And I think you and I face this choice way more than we realize. Every single day. And becoming aware of it is so hard to do, but it's incredibly important to learn to, to love, to make the grand gesture, even if it's an ordinary one, every single day in a million tiny ways. And, and it's a choice we face all the time, you know, between playing it cool and reasonable and sentinel, sentable or economical, or in, an, in another kind of related category, just being so overwhelmed, you know, and so consumed by the cares of the day. Or being lavish with our joy and love and generosity and our ability to connect with one another on just a soul level and say thank you for you know, being in my life and to learn how to do this in a million little ways because love really can be extravagant in a lot of ordinary ways. And theologically speaking, I think it is a profound act of worship and devotion to do the scarecrow with your daughter in the middle of Snorbstrom. Um, and we can do, we have these opportunities every single day. And I swear that they, they beat back the darkness in the world every single time. Mary loses herself in the moment, and she just goes for it, worshiping Jesus. And I wish I would live more like that. And I wish for you that you would live more like that, that you would just lavish love on those around you with reckless abandon. That's what Mary did, and 2,000 years later, here we are still telling her story. It's really quite beautiful. And I don't know if they'll tell our story um, 2,000 years from now, but I know that Christ said everything we do like that, everything that's done in love gets taken up in this thing called the kingdom, and somehow it lasts. It lasts forever. It lasts in the life of God, in, in the heart, in the mind of God, into what's next. This is what it means to be human. The sum of what we do, the stuff that looks like this, it lasts. But you gotta want it. You gotta want that life. Let's pray. Lord, it is a crazy story. Just so weird. And, um, and yet our souls respond to it. Our souls say yes. And we confess all of us that um, something holds us back from fear, the scarcity, to um, insecurities, Resentment, down to just playing, you know, self-centeredness and busyness and being tired. But something holds us back a lot of the time from ordinary acts of love and just the ordinary grand gestures of every day. And so we pray that you would help us to see those moments more clearly. 
that you would help us to be strong and brave to just let go and love those around us and let them know how much they're appreciated. And that you would teach us a better, more sane rhythm of life that's not so crazy busy that we don't have time to love each other. And especially those who are on the margins. And I thank you for this church and for these ragamuffins and the way everyone here seems to try to chase after you. Give us strength and sustain us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand, please. And we're going to receive communion. The reason we do this is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and um, he broke it and gave thanks for it and handed it out to his guys. And he said, um, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the, the common cup and passed it around. They each drank from it. And he said, this cup is like the new covenant in my blood. Blood just meant life for them. He's, he said, whenever you gather from here on out, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my body, my life into your life. Be made out, out of the stuff I'm made out of. Be new, be born again. And then go out into the world and do extravagant grand gestures of love everywhere you go. And so this is, this is why we receive communion. It's kind of a weird thing too. We like walk forward and receive like body and blood. It's, it's weird, but it's just this reminder that we feast on this and we become new, new creations in the world. And this is what the world needs and we do too. So we invite anybody, you don't have to be like a member or pass some test. We just invite anybody to join us at the table if you call on the name of Christ for your help. If you will pray with me. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us? Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?